Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Gabby Gabby talks to Alan Hudson in My Life, My Music. How are you, mate? How you doing, Al? I'm all right, mate. Good. And welcome all to My Life, My Music podcast with the governor, Alan Hudson, when we look at some of the songs that shaped the life of one of British football's greatest ever talents. That's a bit better, isn't it, second time around? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start off with um, with a tribute, because this, this whole podcast today is going to be a tribute to uh, to Matthew Hardy. Matthew was a special person at Chelsea, an absolute legend. And, and you have a, an annual dinner at, uh, at Langan's and we put the pictures up on your uh, your official Facebook pages and Twitter pages. So what, what's your memories of, of Matthew? Um, I've never really um, met anyone like Matthew. He was, um, he, he was a total one-off. He worked in... All I knew that he he was very wealthy. He, he was very young for the kind of situation I was uh, in. Um, I hadn't signed for Chelsea when I came back. I was just I just went down there for a testimonial, and I was playing in a, in a uh, I was doing a penalty shootout thing at half time. I saying I was getting changed in the dressing room, and he walked in, and I didn't read it. I didn't even know him. I was I was minding my own business, and someone introduced me to him, and they said. Uh, uh, this is Matthew Arden, and he introduced me to him. And I went, and he went, yeah, I know. He said we've met, and I went, I looked at him, I went, oh, I, I, I've never met you before, kind of thing, you know. And uh, that was the way he was. He says, uh, uh, he knew, he 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 actually said, I I I knew Alan, I knew Alan because once you put a chip a, a blue Chelsea shirt on, he knew you, yeah, whether he'd met you or not. And uh, obviously he didn't know the Chelsea player at that time, but that was the way he was. He, he and he and he, he made a quote around uh, that kind of time that uh, uh, anyone he 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 thought of everyone of the played Chelsea in the same way. And when they left Chelsea, you know that was it. It was it was like a, a, a splitting up with a wife kind of thing, you know. Yeah. It was a uh, and he just moved on. And but he was just. He was just a he was just a lovely, lovely, lovely fella, you know. Um, I didn't really get to know him that well. I was just getting getting to know him actually when when the, that tragedy happened. Awful, because you've had you know a couple of recent owners, Abramovich being the owner of Chelsea now, and uh, and Ken Bates, who I suppose for for most people outside of Chelsea would look at him and, and think of of Bates being on the FA committee and a prominent person. I always thought of him as a right tosser, to be fair, but what's your thoughts of Ken Bates? <laughs> <laughs> well, I find it weird to, to actually talk about people like him because yeah. um, uh, I, I, I can half understand to, today with, with, with just a massive business and 
there's people owning football clubs that really haven't got no love for much of the football club they own or anything like that. And Ken was like that. He was, he was just, he, um, I, from the word go, I, I just knew him as someone that was, didn't have the club at heart, you know, and, and I, and I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around that. And, uh, and nothing really has changed since, you know. It's the same as with Abramovich, really. Is that mm-hmm. they say that he was um, he was in, in a, a light aircraft one day. He was going over, flying over Stamford Bridge. They were going to look at White Hart Lane or something to to buy Spurs, and he asked somebody what it was down up, uh, below, and they said, uh, "Oh, it's Stamford Bridge." He said, "Well, what's wrong with that?" And uh, that's how it all began. He said, "Let's have a look at that. Let's go and have a look at that." So it was just who was available at the time, really, and uh, uh, it turned out just right for Abramovich because, from all from what I've heard, you know, I've actually heard that he's not really the chairman. I've heard that Putin's the chairman anyway, yeah. or or runs uh, who owns the club, and and he just works for him. So it's just a. Uh, it's just a base for him, really, and 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 the, the mystery continues because he's obviously, as you know, he's you know he's not allowed back in the country, and you know how can he run the club from his yacht kind of thing? You know, it's, it's just this it's just something that don't add up all the time. No, it does seem absolute lunacy because if you look at Abramovich on face value, it doesn't look as though Roman Abramovich has done an awful lot wrong. But for him not to be allowed back in the country suggests that something isn't, something doesn't sit right with uh, with the British government there. And there's been one or two little things that's gone on with Russia and 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 the UK and and perhaps Abramovich has got been embroiled in this directly or indirectly. And I think you you're probably right. I think that the ownership of Chelsea probably does go a little bit more towards the Kremlin. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I wasn't surprised when I found that out. It was uh, because it's just it just seems like a game of monopoly for them yeah. people. You know, uh, he's um, um, it, it's much like you know the the situation at, at Fulham. I mean, if I'd have been a Fulham supporter when Fayad had it, who who owned who, who ran Arids and everything else, and he was involved with him and the family involved with the royal family again and uh princess die and this and everything else and then he put the statue of michael jackson up outside and you know being a, a fulham supporter as a kid I, I found it quite a bit of an insult really to people like uh johnny haynes you know yeah. uh what's he doing and he just said well i just loved his music so it's, it seems if you've got a bit of power or money, you can put any anything you want outside of football ground. It just I walked by there one day and see it, and uh, just left leaves a bad taste in your mouth, you know. Well, I don't remember Michael Jackson ever playing for Fulham. To be fair, um, and, well, and, never, and I reckon he never had a bad game for Fulham. <laughs> and I think the ideal statue to put outside a football ground would be one of a legend that has actually kicked a ball for them and not someone whose music that you like. Now, we're going to play Holding Back the Years for um, for, for Matthew. Um, there's another song that we're, we're, 
we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show as we come back to Chelsea with Chicago because there's a poignant point about you with Stoke and, and leaving Stoke there. So the the kind of thread of this show tonight, this podcast, is is about leaving. But as we leave and and holding back the years was one of the favourite songs of arguably the greatest influence, apart from your dad, of your career. Tony Waddington, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, strangely enough, I was playing for Seattle at the time and uh, I come over to this country and I was, I, I, he had a, a, a kind of a, a small place on the beach in Abersock and I, I've been down there before and I went there to visit him with my friends. I'd spend the weekend with him and I walked into this, their social club and it was a, uh, it was a lovely blizzard. I remember it being a beautiful day and walked in and to see him and, and that song was on and I, uh, and I see him walking away with the jukebox. I said, I didn't know you could work a jukebox. <laughs> and uh, he, because he was like that, he was old school, you know. And yeah. uh, oh, he said this song. He said it's just, you know, just wonderful. Uh, yeah. So yeah, he, he, that that song. Whenever I want to think of Tony, I'll put that on. Listen to 
Tony a fan of Simply Red as well or was it just holding back the years that he just loved he loved the lyrics because I think that's the thing with the song isn't it songs remind you of places where you were at a certain time and the lyrics resonate don't they well yeah yeah no it was it was it was uh, he obviously heard it one day and it, it just it was just strange that he had been a Manchester United player as a kid he went through the you know the ranks of, and then he got a bad injury and it's just strange that Mick Hucknall was a was a Manchester United supporter as well. So it just kind of fell into place. But he wouldn't have known Simply Red for, I, I suppose, with Stoke wearing red and white as well. Yeah. He he probably looked on the jukebox and thought, oh, that sounds good, Simply Red, and put it on. And I don't know if he had ever heard it before, but he said, well, what a song this is, you know. Is it? And it was Tony because he's very... He, he was... Um, he, he was a... He, he was very romantic kind of thing, you know, and that, that's what I loved about him. He was he loved everything in life, all the all the great things in life. Um, for somebody that was fantastic on the on the game itself, people just thought he was a football man, but he was an all rounder, you know. And he was also primed by by Matt that Busby wanted um, what the God to take over at, at Man United when when Sir Matt abdicated his throne, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, but it was it was pretty well known uh, that uh, he was close to uh, Matt Busby, and um, I remember jump, getting on the train with uh, Tony and our chairman one day, Albert Henshaw, and I would, I'd been to a tribune in Birmingham, mm-hmm. and then we got on the train, and actually Matt Busby was on the on the panel as a tribunal against me at Chelsea. Uh, and I'd, on the train coming home, there was just four of us on the table. And when Tony spoke, Matt kind of held on to every word he said. You know, he had so much time for Tony. And he, he pleaded him to take um, the Manchester United job. But Tony, like, funny enough, like myself a little bit, he was um, he was a little bit too loyal to the cause. But the, the lot he showed, he never got back uh, from from Stoke, you know. Now that's that's often the case, isn't it? Loyalty and what's perceived as a legend at a football club, it's not. It's it, it's often not given back, is it? I remember you telling me the story about when you, you was with Tony and he, he was locked out in the rain, wasn't it, at the Victoria Ground? Well, I, I I just couldn't believe it. He was um, that was right at the end of my second 
uh, spell there and uh, I, I was on my last legs and I remember Tony came to one game and I I was walking towards the ground and it was raining and the, I see him standing outside and the, it stoked they got the glass doors there and just inside they got the steps that lead up to the boardroom and or, or you can wait inside and wait for your tickets and, and I said to him what are you, what are you doing? He says I'm waiting for tickets to be sent out to me. I said well you're not standing outside in the rain. I said, uh, anyway, I, I grabbed hold of the doorman. I said, excuse me, do you, do you know who this man is? He said, well, I do. He said, but he's got tickets. So I said, if it wasn't for this man, mate, there wouldn't be no football club. Yeah. I said, this is Tony Waddington. I said, you better let him in, otherwise there's going to be a bit of trouble. And he, and he, you know, one or two stewards come over. I said, no. He said, I said, he's coming in. And, and he walked in the door and I walked in there with him and, uh, I sent someone through to get him tickets, but he would like that. You know, he's, he was he was too humble, really. Whereas somebody like myself, I would have just turned around and went somewhere else. But he did. He, he I mean, he had Stokes that he, you know, it's in his heart, really, and that which was a terrible shame. It did. And what happened was, well, it was painful to see that that they helped they helped kill him, really, yeah. because uh, when when they treated him so shabbily. Um, he just kind of went downhill after that, you know. And this is the thing that fans don't understand about the game. They don't hear, they don't see that, they don't know about that. And, you know, you're a player, you're a manager, you give them everything, you give the club everything, you leave the club, you go on to pastures new, and that that's what you do. It's your career. But there is no loyalty in football, and in some instances, former players and former managers are treated like dirt, and it it, it just it just isn't right, is it? Given well, that the stuff is so much. When when you think, um, I mean, <laughs> that's why I've got to admire someone like Sir Alex, you know, yeah. because he got himself in a position where nobody could treat him like they treated Tony. You know, uh, he was such a powerful man, but Tony. He was too good for his from for his own good really. He was he was trustworthy and he loved the club and the people that he helped along the way had no time for him, you know, yeah. when, when, when it was the other side of the coin and I agree with everything you said there. Yeah. yeah, it's uh it's not it's not a nice thing. It's it's an it's a horrible side of football that yeah. the spectators don't see. No. And uh the ashes, the summer's finished now. I mean, at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, it, well, 9 o'clock is dark now, 8 o'clock with the games on Sky, the kicking off in the dark, the floodlights are on. But we've had a great summer of, of cricket. And you once opened up the batting with a cricket legend, didn't you? So let's talk about cricket briefly. Yeah, I love the cricket. It was always my second sport. I mean... Uh... I was I was not a bad cricketer. I wasn't good enough to to make it the top level like some people. But um, now I, I I knew um, Viv Richards, uh, the great Viv Richards, uh, pretty well. And uh, through through my friend Chris Garland, who played with me at Chelsea, they he he spent some time with him, and they went out with a couple of girls who were sisters, and one thing led to another, and they introduced me to him, and Viv was just as good as it gets really you know he was the greatest player and cricketer in the world and uh he was just like first time i met him as if i'd known him all my life yeah and 
and we spent a bit of time together. We had a few drinks together. We had a few drinks before this certain match this day. And uh, we're sitting in the in the dressing room before the game and we put our gear on and putting the pads on and we were batting and he and he, he just kind of looked round the dressing room and he said, who's going to open the batting? And I put my hand up. I said, I will. I said, I'll do it, Governor. And he looked at me and laughed and he went, well, you you take first ball. And uh, that uh, fella called Dave English, who uh, I didn't realise Dave was so bigger in the music industry or <laughs> what he'd done. I really didn't know what he was. I just knew David as a right nice nice fella. He was a lovely, lovely, charming man. And he said, I'll, I'll open with you, Al. And, and there we were. We, we opened the batting. So that was... Uh, both of our claim to fame, and I, I, it was quite, quite funny. It was a Sunday morning, and we'd, we'd had a, been out on the Saturday night, and uh, when we walked to the wicket, it was it was really funny because I said to Dave, I had no intention of doing what I was saying to him. I said, look, we'll we'll have a look at the bowling of two or three overs, and said then they will let loose, you know. And he went, to, he looked at me, and he went, oh, he said. No, he said, you know, you're serious about this? I said, yeah, of course I am, Dave. I said, so let's, you know, let's let's get serious when we get to the crease. And I got there and I knew the fellow that was bowling. And that's the first ball. I took a swing at it. And then he looked at me as much as, oh, this is not the same fellow I walked to the crease with, you know. <laughs> and then I took a couple of more swings. And then I, I got out and then I walked off. And he just, he just, he watched me walk out and he he was shaking his head at me. He just couldn't work me out. And uh, afterwards, he said, "He said it's right what they say about you. You are crackers, isn't you?" <laughs> and yeah, and we we laughed about it. every time we see each other. We laughed. We didn't even talk about it. We just looked at each other and smiled, you know. But he was a, he was a good man. And I couldn't believe it when I I bought the 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 probably the one of the greatest music discs of all time when. The, the history of the Bee Gees and he was he was there he was with the the, the Gibb brothers singing and dancing on the on the tape with them and I just couldn't believe it I couldn't so I, I did, but I never never ever got round to talk about that experience because he he pretty much looked after the Bee Gees didn't he David English and for those that don't know he he's also known as Lord Bunbury so whenever you watch an England cricket game. Pretty much every player on that pitch has come through David English's cricket academy. I mean, he's a, the guy's an absolute superstar and a legend. Yeah, but you wouldn't know it. Yeah, he's yeah. one of those that you, yeah. you would know. He doesn't talk about it, or he's just uh, again, he's he's one of those who's kind of when he's in your company, he's very humble, and you know, it's almost as if he's thrilled to be in your company, you know. Uh, and yet there he is. Uh, rubbing shoulders with the, the, the best musicians in the world, you know, and and, and not mentioning it, you know, um, not that not that I spoke about music to him, but uh, I'm sure if he'd have known what you know about me by now, that uh, he, he would have probably brought it up in the next conversation, you know. Now, we've played um, songs before on the show of, of the early Bee Gees because you love the Odessa um, album, don't you? That red album. But yeah. we're going to have a look a little bit at more up to, well, not up to date, but while you was playing at Arsenal, round about that time, um, Saturday Night Fever come out and Grease had come out. There was two iconic films. 
have you got any memories of, about those days? Because I, I remember you telling me the story about Baker Street when you used to pull up at the lights and, or, yeah. you know, and have it blasting out of the car. But the Saturday Night Fever, that was one hell of an iconic an iconic film, and it, it almost reintroduced the Bee Gees back into mainstream pop music in this country, didn't it? Yeah, the, um, it, it, was, it was a fella that changed their life, really. He was, um, I actually, I, I nearly got to meet him when I was in Bermuda once. He lived in Bermuda, and uh, he, he just, just I, I, you've never seen a, a a band changed like the Bee Gees did and their music and how, how, you know, I always thought that Robin Gibb was uh, the main singer in the yeah. group. Uh, he was my favorite. Then obviously Barry took over and when they changed this, uh, their kind of, um, whatever, whatever it is that they call the music they changed into the, the kind of more of a disco thing. Yeah. Uh, but I, I remember that the greatest story I've heard of the, the Bee Gees is when he, they was up in the, I, I think it might have been in New York, and um, and they, he asked he, he'd asked them to to write the songs for a new album, and uh, they were in his office, and they were a song short, and um, um, he said, "Well, you better you better be quick and write us another song. You know, we we need another song because we we want to get this album out." So the the three brothers they they walked out and they they went and sit sat on the stairs outside his office, and it was like a Back, the backstairs thing it was like a, a lift shaft there and um and they they said they sat round and they um where if you've ever been on the the, the london underground it, they got uh, you know buskers and think people like that singing down there and the sound is unbelievable that's what kind of sound i would have if i was a musician and and they just sat and with with the echo sound that they sang the they they sat and wrote the New York mining disaster in about twelve or thirteen minutes. Yeah. And uh, and I remember seeing that, and I and then not long after I walked for a record store in the West End of London, and uh, it was one of those massive mega stores, and and they had they had it on blaring out loud, and I thought, Christ Almighty, you know. That is quite something to do. Write a song like that in 12 minutes, and you, you come out with that. So, I mean, it's a different kind of genius, isn't it? You know, that kind of thing, Paul. In the event of something happening to me, there is something I would like you all to see. It's just a photograph of someone that I knew Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking to her, you call her landslide Mr. Jones I keep straining my ears to hear a sound Maybe someone is digging underground Or have they given up and all gone home to bed Thinking those who once existed must be dead Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? 
In the event of something happening to me There is something I would like you all to see It's just a photograph of someone that's lying you Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll cause a landslide Mr. Jones And talking about writing, John Hellier has... through your your Friday clubs with uh, with Captain Rum as well, Lewis Griffiths. Um, your latest book has, has been written, and John, being a massive fan of Small Faces, and and you with Marriott and Small Faces, and your love of music, developed an instant friendship with the guys. So you you talk us through an audience with Alan Hudson. What's it all about? And I've got the website so people can then go and purchase the book by going on to all the W's, although you don't need to say that now, alan-hudson.co.uk. Click on that and buy the book. Yeah, um, it was a funny, it's a the strange, oddest situation. It was, um, John's a man of very, very few words. Um, I didn't, und- I didn't realise he was so big in the industry. Uh, Lewis done most of the talking and Lewis likes a drink. John, not so much, you know, he was more of a just taking back seat. And uh, I did know that he held on to every word, you know, John. And I, I thought I didn't I really didn't really know his role in what we was what we were talking about, what this meeting was all about. And and then as a week's got went by and that's well, it got to about six months went by, and he said to me, uh, he said, you'll be very pleased, Al. And I said, pleased with what? And he said, uh, well, he said, I've nearly finished your book. I said, what book? And uh, I, he went, no, he said, I'm writing a book. Uh, he said, I think you'll be very, very pleased. He said, uh, he said more important, he said, I'm delighted, he said, because I'm, as I'm writing it, I'm laughing. And I said, what are you laughing at? He said, he said well, he said, I've, I've been jotting all your stories down and putting them into a book and that's and and he's and the outcome was an audience with alan hudson and uh and that they were all everything that i spoke about while we were talking you know they and it wasn't you know there was no there was no uh take record and nothing no 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 sign of him writing anything and and when i got to read this book i thought this is this is incredible. How on earth has he not only held on to every word but got everything so right? And he's he's actually wrote it as if it's me writing it because you know it was a, it would be put in exact same context as I would have put it. So um, and I went out one day and I I, I was I think I was at home and I, I I got a bike in my bedroom and I was reading the bike and I thought I'd, I'd have a flick through this book. And uh, I read it, and then I got changed, and I walked out, and I said, I thought to myself, I must call John, and I called John up, and I said, John, uh, I've got to tell you something. He said, what's that? He went, uh, I said, look, I've read this book, mate, and he thought I was going to say something. Uh, <laughs> and I went, look up, mate. I said, mate, this is brilliant stuff. Well done. 
he says, Al, he said, that's all I wanted to wear. He says, that has made my day. He said, this this means everything to me. You like in this book, he said, because I, he says, I, I still flick through it and I still laugh. And uh, he, he's done an absolutely fantastic job of it. And considering it was a secret, it, it was... Uh, it's just a, fab- a fabulous, fabulous story because I've never heard anything like it. I've never known anyone to actually have a conversation with someone for a few weeks and then next thing you know, they wrote a book about him. But that's John Hellier because he, again, I love I loved the, the humble side of things and he just uh, he's just happy to crack along and help and, you know, He's done it for no fin- financial gain. Him and Lewis done it for uh, absolutely no financial gain whatsoever. And they say, come on, let's get this book out for you. So uh, it's pretty special. And a massive fan of you as well. And, and sometimes when you're a... Because I mean, John, for people that don't know John, um, he's a big Arsenal fan and you did go and, and play for Arsenal but I remember him uh, telling me the story and it was on London Live as well where Chelsea were playing at West Ham and he, he crossed over London to watch Alan Hudson play because he absolutely loved you and not just the way that you played but everything about you you know the um, the, the way that you used to hold yourself your dress your hairstyle and everything and you 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 were the iconic football player of that of that time and and I think that's another thing that John related to and and I know speaking to him he was absolutely chuffed to to, to do that for you yeah yeah he, he, he really was and yeah and I think uh it's going but I think we've had this conversation before yeah. it's like uh you know they always said it you know footballers at that time they they you know kind of uh mirrored us to be like pop stars and I think a lot of pop stars would like to have been footballers and, and vice versa, you know. And uh, I didn't realise at that time that um, there was so much money in it. Otherwise, I might probably would have become a pop star because I think if Ring- Ringo Starr can be a pop star, anyone can, you know. <laughs> and they have such a long <laughs> career, don't they? I mean, the Rolling Stones are still going. I mean, Jagger, blimey, he must be 70 if he's, if he's a day. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I think he's closer to eighty and he's seventy. But probably uh, he's got to be, yeah. Yeah, and you, when you think the kind of life they've lived, and uh, you know, it's just amazing that they still go and so on and do these things. But uh, um, I, I remember when I was a kid living in Chelsea, first time round. Uh, I didn't know at that time, but the the story went that they they they. They played in a in a pub uh, right on the corner of where I am, actually am now. I can actually see it out my window now. Uh, it's, it's now a Paddy Power yeah. uh, betting shop. Uh, they they played in there as a, a skiffle group in in the the sixties, and uh, for peanuts. And they they actually lived in the next turn to me here. So, but I never I never ever came across the only time. Funny enough, the only time I came across. One of them was in that same game with uh, David English when we played cricket and Bill Wyman was playing. And uh, you wouldn't believe it. You know, he was a quiet one of the band when he was one that never spoke or he just yeah. stood there. And I, I don't know if, if, if even if he was make, making any sound with a, in the music, he just stood there. I don't know. It's like, I mean, 
thin in Madame Tussauds, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, I, he and I, I never even spoke to Bill. He was in. He was in the. You know, for somebody that loved loving the music as well, um, it was uh, it was quite weird when you see these individuals in, in real life. They're kind of uh, where whereas footballers, you you you, th- you read about these pop stars and of, of that time all being a bit crazy, you know, like your Keith Moons and all this, and uh, you know, it was the other way round. Really, it was the, the footballers were the worse than them, you know. And a big football story that's broke um, over the last couple of days. Up there at Sheffield United, it looks as though um, the 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 ownership has, has changed hands for £5 million, apparently. And uh, Kevin McCabe's had to um, give... Well, he's, he's received £5 million from Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. And Tony Curry has been on uh, TalkSport today. I know he's been doing a little bit of press um, and, and close to tears, if not tears rolling down his face. It has to be a dark day for football when a legend like Tony Curry... He feels as though he can't be a director of a, of the club that he loves any longer. Well, I, I think it's just another page in in our book, really, that yeah. uh, that can go wrong. Uh, because uh, I didn't even know he's a director at Stoke, and Chelsea played Sheffield United the other, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and uh, down at Stamford Bridge. And I I just flick him through my pages somewhere. I don't know what it was on on one site, and I see the photo of. Tony is at Stanford Bridge, and I I kind of put a reply into it and asked him to give me a call, and it, and on, he called me on the Monday morning. And uh, um, I've known Tony for quite some years. I played with him two or three times in the under 23s. We never played uh, the top highest level for England, but we we just had a couple of wonderful matches in together, and. Uh, and he and he he put it on me. He said, "I, you know, you know, I'm a director there. I just couldn't believe it, you know, because the last time I heard, he was cleaning the dressing rooms out. He was telling, told me the story about how, how he was cleaning the dressing room out for the for the kids, you know, uh, and the parents were there. And he said, uh, he said, you ain't gonna believe this. He said, but aren't you, you know, I used to play for England. And he said to the parents, and you know, they all they all turned around and thought he was off his nut." Uh, but that was that was Tony, you know. He, he he was like that. But you know, when you think what he's done, I've always said that there's only three three players that have, have done something like that. That gone. It used to be the other way round. They used to come down north and take over London, you know, yeah. especially from Scotland. They we used to call them the foreigners. Yeah. Um, but I think when when I went to Stoke, I kind of broke broke the mould up there. Um, and then Tony went to Sheffield United from Watford, and uh, and Charlie George, you know, another fan, fantastic player, did the same when he went to Derby County when Dave Mackay took him there. Mm. You know, they they really and and every time I went to them matches, uh, there's the first people I'd ask about was you know what what do you think about Charlie George in Derby and uh, you know they they just they couldn't believe it and. Same at Sheffield United with Tony. I mean, he he was a king up there. His name is still. I mean, I mean, he, there'll never be another player like him in Sheffield. No, not at all. And and also in them seventies periods, we had characters on the pitch, characters off the pitch, characters on the pitch. I remember Stan Bowles being uh, photographed with a 
a young lady and they then got many clothes on and you you had one or two little photo calls certainly in the arsenal dressing room with a, a young lady and then when you had minor bird and the, the, the frank had, had, had have similar similar photographs of you know, it, the, there was lots of things going on in the 70s, wasn't that? But no one and none of these players actually sat down and kissed each other. But Tony Curry and Alan Birch and all did. That was an iconic photo as well, wasn't it? Well, yeah, they were. They they obviously crossed paths um, at Sheffield United when yeah. just before we bought Alan Birch and all and uh, uh, from Sheffield. And Tony must have. It must have been a time when. Tony first went there, I can only think, and uh, they become friends over the years. And that was that was a time, yeah, when they uh, there was a tussle for the ball. They both ended on the floor, and they both turned around, looked at each other, and he, and Birchin all said to him, "Give us a kiss." <laughs> and and uh, and they it was yeah, it was one of the uh, the most iconic photographs, football photographs of all time. But they, they you know that couldn't happen today, you know. Uh, you know, uh, they get up and start shaping up to each other rather than uh, kissing each other. That was what, that was what the game was then. You know, you, you, I, I had a couple of instances in games where uh, um, I had people, one particular player, I, I can remember I was on the floor at Sheffield, funny enough, in Sheffield, at Sheffield Wednesday, and Man City had a player, well, Sheffield Wednesday had a player who, who played at Man City, and uh, the ball ran loose and he was on, was on the floor and he he, he gave me a right hander and I I just turned around and started laughing and, and that, but that's what we done in them days you know you you just got up you just got up and got on with it whereas the day that you know you'd there'd be a riot wouldn't there you yeah. know uh, over, over nothing over nothing at all. Now Birch was at Chelsea for some time and there's um, a story about people diving in a, a swimming pool wasn't that Do you want to elaborate on that a bit. Well, he, yeah, he was. He was. Uh, it, it was. Um, I, I can remember the tour. It was a. It was a uh, one of those tours when it was one of my first trips with, with Chelsea, and uh, I remember it was um, the chairman's wife June Mears. She, she was a very, very attractive lady, and she was just by the side of the pool, and she she dived into the ball and pool, and the next thing you know, there's a bait. But eight of our players dived in after her, and uh, it was just it was just so comical. It was like a, a carry on film, you know, because about uh, eight went in, only about three of them come up. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it was it just wasn't so. It was serious because you wanted to win, and you did win, and you conquered Europe, and you conquered everything. But there was the the. the it was a game back in them days. It, it turned into almost a business, didn't it, when the money came? And football does lack those characters of yesteryear, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, uh, I think probably the last was, uh, going back to photographs, the last the last photograph of that kind of ilk was, um, you know, the Vinnie Jones one with yeah. Gascoigne, you know, yeah. and which really, really put Vinnie Jones on the map. Um, I mean, he couldn't have planned that one better, but that that was the last of having a bit of fun. And uh, otherwise, I think the game has got far, far too serious. I mean, we all, it is a serious game. It always has been a serious game and nobody wants to win more than me. 
but uh, you got you, you know it's like life itself if without humor there's you know you you can't you can't carry on without humor there's it a humorous side to everything and back in Sheffield Joe Cocker was making a name for himself as well wasn't he great voice well I think Birch, Birch told me that when he was in the uh, Penny Farthing Club in Sheffield in them days, which was the top club up, up north, that he, he carried Joe Cocker. He said he made him to the star that what he was because he used to get up on the stage and sing with Joe. But uh, that was Birch, you know. Birch, uh, Birch did fancy himself a bit as, as both a womanizer and a, and a pop star. But he, he was... Uh, um, I look at Joe Cock and you you look at his music and how brilliant he was and you, you I can only I can only think what Birch, Birch was like in them clubs in Sheffield because uh, you know I, I I think probably that would he missed his vocation you know <laughs> because he got to Chelsea and he, you know he he never reached the heights uh, but he he had a hard job though because he played with Oscar which uh, which was just tough you know. And he also had a good career, and he moved around a bit, Birch. But again, another character, and, and probably when you look back at his career, his best years were with Big Frank in that superb Leicester City team. But um, what's your favourite Joe Cocker song? Would it be the old cover of the Beatles? Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. I think it's been it's been done by a lot of people, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, it has, you know, yeah. but but it but it's a great it's a great tune and. Uh, he, he he brought uh, brought something else to it, didn't he? He brought something else to the table. to sing out a key yeah. Oh baby how I All I need is my brother I say I'm gonna get
it happens all the time, yeah. What do you see when you turn out the light? I can't tell you, but it so feels like mad. Don't you know I'm gonna make it with my friends? I promise myself I'll get back. Said I'm gonna try it with them too. Yeah, on, and he also done uh, a duet with someone far more prettier than Birch a few years after in that film Officer and Gentleman when he recorded up where we belong with uh, Jennifer Warnes. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, let Birch hear you say that anyone was prettier than him, mate, <laughs> because uh, he was a pretty boy, you know. Uh, um, yeah, I mean Joe Cocker was. Uh, well, he was. I, I, I don't. I don't really. Well, Sheffield was a was one of those cities, wasn't it? At that time, it was a massive city, and they they reckon that I didn't. I, I wasn't aware of it, but they reckon the nightlife was unbelievable. There still is. Uh, but around that time, he he was a kiddie up in Sheffield, and uh, but once again, it, like the Bee Gees, like the Beatles, like most of most of all our. I mean, I remember Super Champ in America when I met them. You know, mm. you you had to conquer America if you if you was going to make it in the music business, and and that's what Joe had to do. And I think he went there and never come back. Uh, the same applies to the animals. They, you know, they done the house in New Orleans, and I think they went over there and never came back as well. Yeah. So you know, it's just a different scene. And another posting on your uh, your Facebook, your official Facebook page, Alan Hudson was um, Graham Nash. You're a big fan of the Hollies, big fan of Graham Nash, big fan of Alan Clark, two owls in his name, and not the Leeds United striker. But yeah. um, he, he left the Hollies, didn't he, and, and teamed up with another three superstars and had some great hits this side, the other side of the pond as well. Yeah, I, I was choked when he, when he went there, but... Um... When he left the Hollies and they kind of broke up uh, because they they were as good as any other group. Uh, Beatles were probably just on another level, along with the Beach Boys, and just just on that, you know, the Premier League. But um, yeah, but then when he left he left the Hollies, uh, 
And I, I remember seeing a show of him one night and uh, he, he told us how it all come about and he was broken hearted. He was, he, he'd been friends with Alan Clark from his primary school. He said, we were kids together at primary school. He said, and, uh, they were songwriters together and they, and they, he said, we had every, every album we ever made. We, you know, would go in the top 10 straight away. And then, and then one day he, he wrote a song called King Midas in reverse. And, uh, which was a, a, a great song for me. And, uh, they brought it out and, and it, it just about crept into the top 30 and they questioned his writing ability. And he went to America and he was, you know, he, I think he was, didn't know what way his career was going to go. And he, and he bumped into David Crosby and uh, they were out having, having a good time one night and he told him about it. And, uh, and Crosby says, no, he says, he's like a footballer, really. You know, he says, you don't become a bad player overnight. You don't become, he says, you can write songs. You proved it. And uh, and he and he t- he give him the line. He says, "All you can do is just follow your heart." Yeah. And he said, "And that's all I ever did. I I followed my heart." And uh, um, I mean, what a, f- a fabulous piece of uh, advice that was. And uh, he packed up with the Hollies after forty something years. And uh, I think it's fifty years now. He's 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 been with the other firm, something like that. It's it's it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story, and it changes life. And uh, and at that time, he he lived with Janis Joplin, I believe. He married her, and uh, you know his old life. Well, that but that was the difference between England and America. You know, it was just a it's it's a real eye eye opener, and, and people that question the Americans and and the way of life. You know should really question themselves, really. If you could only see me I know exactly where I am You wouldn't want to be me I'm not the guy to run with Cause I'll throw you off the line I'll break you and destroy you Given time He's King Midas with a
follow your heart is exactly what Frank has done, Super Frank, as uh, as he's known. It used to be Frank Wor- uh, Frank Worthington, Frank Lampard's Derby, and then they got beat by the Villa 4-0, then it went to just Derby. <laughs> and it's like Frank Worthington's... Ch- uh, Frank- I must have Frank Worthington on the brain, or do you? <laughs> <laughs> it's Frank what Lampard's Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and that you couldn't get to... Uh, much different uh, individuals than Frank Worthington and Lampard. Um, but no, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's um, he's done. He's doing exactly that at Chelsea now, and yeah. uh, he he said it from day one that he he, he was doing it at Derby and, and doing it really well. But now he took it to a different level with Chelsea, and um, it's early days yet. But he set his stall out and. Uh, he will not change, no matter what. He's going to stick to to his guns, uh, and uh, I was delighted to see. You know, I'm not a Chelsea supporter, such, but I was delighted for him. It took a, a massive weight off his shoulders last weekend when they were falling up against Wolves at Wolves, uh, and I don't think many teams can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's that was obviously what he's told his young players. You know, go out and follow your heart. You know, don't leave nothing out on the field and, you know, this is your opportunity. Take it. And uh, these these kids, it's still early days. We, you know, we it's too early to start saying how, how, how good Chelsea going to be or are these, are these players going uh, to make it. But, I mean, what, what a fantastic opportunity he's given them. Well, we spoke as soon as, well, it was before Frank had, had taken the job. Because he was supposed to have taken it on the Monday, and I think we we done a, a little uh, chat with Alan Hudson about the old days. Because for me, it looks as though it could be a return to the old days where with both Doherty and Sexton, they had great young kids coming through at, at Chelsea because of situations and transfer embargo. Frank was given the job, and it could be a return to those halcyon days. And and so far, so good. And you can only wish Chelsea all the best because they're playing with such a style and so many young English and homegrown talent, that can only be good for the game as well. Well, it's um, it's, it's just gone a uh, complete full circle, hasn't it? Yeah, you it know, has. one moment, you know, you're, we're thinking, where are these kids going to come from? And English football's on its knees. Uh, no, no local talent coming through. I mean, not that these boys are from Chelsea. But uh, they're, they're local English boys, um, and he's he's adamant. And, and I'm, I, I, knowing Frank the way I know Frank, I, I bet he he would rather work with them than established players because yeah. established players can be awkward. Uh, he was in a position where uh, it, it would have been a little bit difficult if if all these players that he had played with had been there and. They wouldn't really have took too much notice of Frank, I don't think. But mm-hmm. these, these these kids, he's he's bringing them up the right way, and uh, I can't think of anyone better to, you know, to get them playing uh, than Frank. He he's, and I think he's what he's doing is he's basically but he's he's drumming in his own work ethic into these players. Uh, he's not asking them anything that he couldn't do himself. Uh, and if they've got the ability, he will persevere with them. Uh, and and it's turning out to be right at the moment. Um, 
again, it's early days. He admitted it himself. You know, he doesn't know what's going to come. There's going to be... No, football's a strange old game, you know. It can it can just subside or turn round in a in a heartbeat, really. You know, um, you got. I mean, we've we've been looking at a, a sunny day in Wolverhampton when they're four 0 up, and come January it's going to be a freezing cold night somewhere, and it, it can go right the other way. You know, they they're going to have some uh, bumpy roads across, and. Uh, it's just, it's going to, I mean, I'm I'm writing a book at the moment about the situation and uh, I, I really, I'm really intrigued uh, at the, of all the twists and turns that's going to come. And your, your book, your writing, your, your, your pen is as, it's articulate, as articulate as your, your ability was on the football field. I love looking at your, your Facebook posts, it's so intelligent, it's so deep, it's so layered, because you translate things from now to back in your day, and you always throw in a little bit of music, and I suppose I'm saying, Al, is when you're writing something, it's actually like trying to make a chilli, you're banging in all the spices, and you're banging everything in, and it's like the, what comes out is absolutely beautiful. Well, I, I, funny enough, I've uh, I've been... Uh, I wouldn't. I don't really know the word, but there's one or two people who turned around and he said, you know, when when I, I write and I said the tr- trouble with you is you live in the past. No, and, you don't. Uh, uh, but this is the way they see it, and they say, well, you've got to move on, and that. Well, and I say to them, look, you, you don't know what you're talking about because you know, without without the past, there'd be no present, and without the present, there'd be no future. So, you know. Um, uh, they they question uh, these things, but I I'm one I'm, I'm one that I think in every walk of life, whatever, I, I'm a great believer in comparisons and you compare people and uh, and I think that's the only way you get to the bottom of how how good people really are if you compare. Yeah. Um. And you know, going back to Waddington, I remember the early days at Stoke when I went there. And uh, the stories about, you know, they were they were rooted at the, the in the old second division, and uh, they were struggling. Of gates of five thousand, four and a half thousand, and you know the potteries was, you know, it was it was a sad place at that time. And uh, he pulled the master stroke of bringing Stanley Matthews back to uh, the Victoria Ground, and uh, the next thing you know, the following week there was thirty five thousand there, and he. Had, he, you know, and the bank manager was delighted. Yeah. And uh, but that was a masterstroke of all masterstrokes. And um, everyone thought, he, you know, he was, they were going to take him away in a straitjacket. Uh, and he, he was proved right. You know, it doesn't matter. Age doesn't matter. And we see it. And years later, we see it with one of my favourite players, Teddy Sheeran, and we see it with him. You know, you just can't beat a wise old head on 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 a great great football brain, uh, and the, you know they'll keep themselves fit. And who's, who's to say, you know, when your numbers up, all you have to do. I mean, if it hadn't have been for injury, I'd have played in probably about the same time. I'd have played into my forties because I was always kept myself really fit. But uh, you know, the, uh, when you think. Uh, your peak used to be 27, 28 in in the old days, but but now it's is is never ending. 
You say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I don't go down the blues now. I've got bought up Birmingham City. I, I look at football in a, in a different way, a different capacity. But Birmingham, I've got a good young kid that's come through. He's uh, or coming through. He's 16, Jude Bellingham. He's broken Trevor Francis's record of the youngest goal scorer and youngest appearance player. And, you know, fans are up in arms and, oh, this kid's going to play for England. And, and look, he, he may well do, but he is only 16 years of age. But what they don't realise is when he actually, if he did play in the 2022 World Cup finals, he will be exactly the same age as what you would have been had you not got injured in 1970 at the Hawthorns. And when I look at a player and how the player's developing, I translate things to what players did do in the past because that's how I compare. So I look at Alan Hudson, would have made his debut at Chelsea at 16. Alan Hudson made his debut in 68. Alan Hudson in, in 1969 was 18 when he was running Chelsea's midfield and would have run England's midfield as well. And you would have been the youngest teenager ever to represent England in the World Cup finals. That's how good you were. Uh, I don't, you know, you don't look at, you don't look at things uh, yeah. at that young age. Things, no? I think things happen. So I, I think if you spoke to the kid, he wouldn't even know what day of the week it is. Absolutely. It, you know, it's, yeah. you know, the, the, the time, it comes and it's like playing in. I, I can tell you about matches I've played in and big matches I've played in, and like the European Cup Winners' Cup final. I can't remember much about it, and and they can pass you by. They they come and they go so quickly, and um, you know you you don't really have time to savour it, and you're you're so involved in it and, and what's going on around you, and it's. And especially at my at my time, it'd be different today for kids because uh, you know they're focused more on the other side of it as well because they got agents and yeah. they got the contracts and they you know they they can they they they're kind of building a, a a new life as they go along. Whereas we were so caught up in the hype of everything, it was money was never uh, never coming to the equation. Uh, it was just. But, you know, it ruined it ruined many marriages. It was we lived at a time where, you know, everybody was wanted to be a playboy or they just couldn't. Especially in this part of the world, uh, it, it it was just incredible times for 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 youngsters in Chelsea. And uh, I sometimes pinch myself and think, well, how how did I? do what I'd done, going out and enjoying myself so much with so little money and, you know, obligation, being married and this, and, you know, you wouldn't know it, you know. The, the, the times were just, uh, the, the weeks flew by as well, you know. You, it was, uh, going into training was like, um, it, it's hard It's hard to put into words, you know, that it was like, you know, it's like having a roommate at Chelsea. I've seen more, if I was rooming with Peter Osgood, I would see more of Peter Osgood than I would my wife, and it was unbelievable. And and that was the way football was in them days. Uh, but yeah, it was an incredible time. And, you know, if you're a manager today and you've got these young players, you've got, as I'm saying with Frank, he, he says, follow your heart. You, you've got to, you've got to, tell them to enjoy every second of it um as I, I about 18 months ago i was over with my son in colorado when he was manager there and 
uh, and I, I, I've told him to make a point to his players that you know, uh, you know, they could be sitting in, a, in an office nine till five every day, and there they are, they're living in a wonder environment, the sun shining, and they're they're keeping themselves fit. Uh, they're doing something they love doing. They're getting very well paid for it, and they they sh- they should really embrace it because it's it's a it's the greatest game in the world. And to be able to get to get paid so much money and in, and and to keep yourself fit in an in an age where you know all we do is every time you pick up the paper, put on the news, there's illnesses and everything else. You know, you're very very fortunate to be an athlete in 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 today's in the modern era where where uh, bosman come along and um made people very wealthy as, as well out of it and talking about pinching yourself i pinched myself when i received email uh off you today what was all that you're not a legend at chelsea <laughs> they have no laugh well it was some uh, somebody somebody i was approached a few months ago and somebody wanted to do a talked about doing a documentary and yeah about me and uh, I've always wanted to do this and uh, especially with uh, it, it's in December it'll be 22 years of my my car uh, near fatal accident and uh, it all comes into the play all it all, it all comes it's all revolves around the, your character I think yeah. and uh, anyway this still didn't come off and one thing led to another and uh, and uh, and I just put on my email this morning and I got an email from a certain gentleman who, who I know and I've met and he, he was interested in doing it. And, and he said, I'm sorry I never got back to you because of the people who are interested, who I, who I thought would be interested, would said you're not a big enough name. And uh, and uh, I, I kind of felt a little bit insulted and I, I, let him, I let my feelings be known and I've spoke to him since and he apologised. He said, "Well, I didn't mean." I said, "Well, look, you sh- you shouldn't be passing things like that onto me. What other people said, because uh, I'm not too happy with it. Um, because um, you know, greatness is something you hold on to. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I I don't. And all it does really, it goes to show today that people they we we spoke on your show about this before. What what does the word legend mean? You know, the, it's just and you know I get sick and tired of listening to people on television talking about footballers and put them in a world class category. And I'm thinking, well, what are they talking about? You know, uh, and then you, you you watch people like Lionel Messi and Maradona before him and George and I played against Cruyff and Pele and. You know, they were they were real world class performers, and the, we just brand these silly names about the people on television and, and journalism now just really don't know the difference. No, I don't think they do. I mean, no. Like when you 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 look at the history of Chelsea and we're back to that great football club again because they're, they're a great football club. Um, not the football club that you support because you grew up a, a Fulham fan and always amazes me what people say how come Alan Hudson he don't like Chelsea he always talks more fondly of Stoke or Arsenal and I'm like well we, Alan's best football was at Stoke uh, Alan might have been born in London but he's a Fulham fan he's, yeah, 
dad bought him up Fulham fan. He used to go down Tottenham and go down Arsenal, watch the inside forwards. Why would he support them? He played for them. But you look at the whole history of Chelsea, you have got to be up there as one of the greatest players that's ever done that blue shirt of Chelsea. End well, up. yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it, it goes back to what we've just yeah. been talking about with Graham Nash. You know, it's taken him to go to America mm-hmm. to find his dream. Uh, everyone's, you know, I mean, Jeff Powell, uh, the great uh, Daily Mail writer, when, when I wrote the book, The Waddington Years, uh, I sent the script to him and he come back to me and he, he said, I, I just can't believe that you had this relationship with him. And he, and he wrote the foreword for me and he said, uh, you know, he, he, I found my Svengali. He said, everybody's looking for their Svengali. He said, and you found it in Waddington. And, and this is what happens. How do we know where we're going to meet this person? It's like a, it's like a man, a woman. That how do you, how, how do you know where you're going to meet the love of your life? You know, you, you could go to the other side of the earth from here. It doesn't mean it's going to be on your doorstep. You don't have to come from Chelsea to to be a Chelsea supporter. I mean, there's full of, there's, there's supporters now in in my local pub, and they they go to Manchester United every week. And you know, how can they be Manchester United supporters? But uh, not that I, I'm, you know, I'm not really, uh, not a fan of all that. But I'm not a football supporter anyway. I just love, I just love football itself. Yep. And um, if I sit down and watch a game, I just want to see. I'd rather watch a good game and and uh, and not really care about a result to see a great game than than my team win a. a, a a terrible game. I did, I'm just not into that because it's it's we want to be entertained and we want to see we want to see great players having great games. Absolutely, hundred percent agree. Football is all about entertainment. You entertained us through your career, and so did many other players of your generation. And Chelsea, as we're talking now, are almost going to kick off in Europe. It's a different Europe now because uh, Frank knows all about the players. It was different in your days. You didn't know about all the players. You didn't even know who you're going to play in the European Cup Winners' Cup final. You, you, even to this day, you still don't even know. That was the way it was. There was a little bit of secrecy about football in those days as well, wasn't there? A lot of innocence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <clears throat> once again, it's with you being young and everything else, it's, um, we, we, we didn't fear anyone and we just went into every game as it came. Um, you know, we, we obviously wanted to play against the leads because we know all about them, but we didn't know anything about the opposition. And we was like, we were going into the unknown every time we played in Europe. Yep. Uh, uh, we enjoyed the flights. The flights were great. The the aerosises were, you know, running scared of the Chelsea players. So it was all. It was all. It was just a time to behold, really. Uh, and you know, that's probably the worst thing ever happened to us because it, it broke the team up. Because the manager weren't very happy with with the outcome of it. But yeah, I mean, uh, this tonight with Chelsea, these kids, it's all happened so quickly to them, and now here they are playing in a Champions League game, which is just incredible, really. So, you know, I'd, I'd really love to have, uh, have known his team talk tonight, what he, what he said to these youngsters before they go out there, you know. What would you have said to Mal finally? Well, I would I would have just said, look, uh, I, I, I was thinking that Dave really, he, he must have had some sleepless nights whether he, he was going to play all these kids together in such a, 
you know, it, it's it just again, it's a walk. It's going into the unknown. Uh, are they good enough? But it's it's obviously it's it's going to be a great test, and, and it's Frank's going to find out a lot about his players tonight. Uh, but I, I think I'd I'd have said exactly said uh, if go out there tonight and and go and play as if you're going out, you're training and you're you're you just give it everything and and enjoy it and and enjoy the moment you know and and just embrace embrace the moment and uh, because you know you're very very fortunate to be in this position. Yeah, well said. And um, again. Thanks for a wonderful hour. My missus just come up. She said, you've been an hour and ten. I want to back <laughs> that. <laughs> and Chelsea have kicked off. So thanks again, Al. Absolutely right, loved it. And we're going to raise our glass to the memory of uh, of Matthew Harding. And we're going to go out with If You Leave Me Now. Cheers, pal. Yeah, uh, cheers, pal. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, Al. Bye, Thank mate. you. Bye. 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 Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.